This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. The ghost in our attic was angry we'd put planks over the window to keep the wood from rotting. He woke the house when the wind burst in, or maybe it wasn't a ghost. From the poem The Looking Glass, written by me, K.B. Marie, and this is the true story of who killed my mother. My thumb hovers over the green call button on my phone. On the screen, the medical examiner's office number sits framed. My heart races, rabbiting high in my throat. I exhale slowly and make the call. You've reached the office of the medical examiner. Please listen as the following options have changed. I run a hand down my face, trying to pull myself into a functional human being. I've almost managed it when a kind voice comes onto the line and says, Medical examiner's office, this is Sienna, how can I help you? Yes, hello, I'm calling for an update on my mother's autopsy results. Your mother's name? I give her the name. Her date of birth? I give her the date of birth. And her date of death? I give her the date of death. And listen to the fingers race efficiently across a keyboard, the typing sound familiar and reassuring. You would think this would get easier with time or practice. After all, I've been calling every week to ask for an update on my mother's case. And before you think I'm harassing these people, I am not. I was told to wait eight weeks from the date of my mother's death, which I did, and then to check in weekly for the updates. But now that we've reached the twelfth week, I know I'm going to get an answer soon, if not this week or the next, certainly the one after. The answer is coming and I'm terrified I won't like it. The line crackles and I brace myself for the response. Yes, ma'am, it looks like your mother's case is still pending. You can try back next week. My heart unclenches. Okay, thank you, I will do that, I say and end the call. I place the phone face down on the dining room table and scratch out the words, call the ME, in my planner. I flip the page to the following week and write the words again. The doorbell rings and my little pug perks up on his pillow, his ears erecting in the picture of vigilance. He trots after me, close on my heels as I go to the door, seeing the mailman walking back to his truck as I pass the kitchen window. On the porch is a box with my name on it. I use kitchen shears to cut it open, removing the excessive tape, and my heart drops. Inside I find a small black container with a white sticker affixed to the front. It has my mother's name on it, and the name of the funeral home that did her cremation. 
The container, made of simple black plastic, looks like a trash can that I would put in my car. But inside, there's a plastic bag of ashes, white powdery dust, tied off with a metal tag. The tag has numbers written on it, which I don't understand. But that's it. This is all that's left of her. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to feel now, when what's left of my mother, no more than five pounds, is resting in my lap. When our first pug, Napoleon, died of cancer, I'd had to pick up his remains from the veterinarian office in a gift bag. Something about receiving him like that, in a little tin, in a bag that looked like a gift, had been so sad. I'd cried the whole way home, wiping my snotty face with my sleeve. But this is my mother, sitting in my lap. Our long and complicated history, all that's stretching out behind us, has come to this, and I feel nothing. The blue jays are bathing in the birdbath outside my window. Two squirrels are fighting over the feeder, trying to knock one another from the pole. And I'm sitting here in my office, looking at a black trash can, and feeling nothing. I've gone numb. What an unceremonious end to such a life. I put my mother back in the plastic container and put the container on what is my version of the ofrenda. The top shelf of my office bookcase already houses the remains of our two beloved pugs who passed, Napoleon and Josephine. And I think that this is as good a place as any for my mother. My mother loved animals. I don't think she minds one bit to be placed on a shelf with two dogs. As I did for Josephine and Napoleon, I add a picture of her to the shelf. Stepping back, looking at the three of them like that, I still can't cry. I thought maybe some great release would come when I finally had her with me, but there's only a cold darkness, a timeless winter night, resting somewhere in my chest. I text Katie and thank her again for picking up my mom, for guarding her ashes as she waited for the special P.O. box to arrive how she had to order it twice because the first one was lost, how she'd packed everything up nicely and shipped it to me straight away. I am grateful for all of her help. How does it feel to have her finally? She asks me. I don't know, I admit. I do know that she would be glad to be with me, at least. But concentrating on this still doesn't make the tears come. Katie tells me a certain degree of numbness at receiving your mother in a Ziploc bag is to be expected. And she must be right. It is pretty bizarre. Sometimes I lift my mother's remains off the shelf, feel the weight of them. I ask, how are you now? I ask, where are you? I stare at this crumbled white dust and think about how many times my mother told me I was beautiful, the most beautiful girl in the world. All I ever wanted was a baby and I wasn't even supposed to have kids, she told me. But I had you and you're perfect, just look at you. When I would call her and tell her I was worried about my writing career, when I'd say I wasn't sure that I could do it, that I could make all my crazy dreams come true, that it all felt so hard. Are you kidding me? She'd say, look at you. You are the most talented person I've ever met. Baby, you are so smart. If anyone can do this, you can. Look at everything you've already overcome. I have no doubt in my mind that you're going to succeed, baby. Look at me. I love you. And you've got this. My mother struggled in many, many ways. But she left no doubt in my mind that I was loved, that I was wanted, that my dreams and my ambitions mattered. 
It might be true that she didn't love herself, and yet somehow that hadn't impeded her from affirming my strengths, my gains. She'd always been quick to acknowledge that I had succeeded in spite of her, not because of her, that every win had been my own. She believed in my worth so strongly that I began to believe in myself. And here, finally, in the face of these memories, I manage my first tear at the thought that I will never hear her voice again. I'm surprised that my Uncle Joe would call Shay. It's true that Shay was the last real friend my mother had, that they would call each other and chat every few weeks on the phone. And as far as I know, this is the only person my mother talked to, checked in with regularly, in the last few years of her life, apart from me. But still, what would Joe possibly have to say to her? They had never been friends. Hell, Shay hates him, and trusts him about as far as she can throw him. So what did he say? I ask her, now more than a little curious. He called to tell me your mama was dead, Shay says, as if I didn't know. Did you tell him I'd already told you? No, I just let him carry on, and did he ever, my God. He was crying and boo-hooing the whole time. About what, Mom's death? He was telling me that he ain't got nobody, how he's all alone now, how everyone is up and gone. I said, you've got two sons. And while this is technically true, I don't think that Joe had spoken to either of his kids in years. I don't suspect that they want much to do with him. Did he tell you what happened when she died? Did he say anything about how it happened or what he thought killed her? He said he thought it was an overdose, that he had come home from work and found her in the floor. My heart kicked. From what job, I'd like to know, she laughed. He ain't had a job in quite a while, he can't keep one. I think again of my mother's last letter, the one outlining her compounded stress about Joe's joblessness, how acutely aware she had been that they couldn't survive on her $800 income alone. Maybe he got a job, I offer weekly. But if he's telling you the truth about finding her in the floor, it means he's lying to me. He told me he went into her bedroom to check on her that morning and found her. Now what he told me, told me he came home, found her collapsed in the floor, and put her in the bedroom. And I try to imagine this brotherly scene, him picking her up off the floor, carrying her into the bedroom, laying her down on her bed, maybe even adjusting the pillow under her head or pulling a cover over her body. Later, when I find out what her body actually looked like when the police found it, this image will be shattered. But for now, I don't know better. What else did he tell the police? She asks me. I recount for her the variations of his story, which dissolved and shifted under the detective's scrutiny. There's the version that he entered her room that morning and simply found her, completely unsure of how she died, but thinking it looked like an overdose, given the color of her skin, her face. There was also the version where he came home and found her collapsed, and had taken her to the bedroom in hopes that she might recover by morning. But he hadn't told me this version. This is one of the later variations he shared with the police. And it makes me think that maybe it's closer to the truth, since now he's telling it to Shay. Though it leaves me with questions. Well, he's trying to tell me that he was at work that day, Shay says. But who works on the 4th of July? A lot of people, I think, but that isn't my problem with the story. It's the timeline. 
of the last 24 hours of my mother's life and the fact that this work statement simply doesn't fit. However he may have told it to Shay, he's given her the impression that he was at work on the day of the 4th. But we know that this can't be true. It would have had to have been earlier if he was at work at all. At 10.10 in the morning on July 3rd, I received that surprise call from Joe in which he told me to speak to my mom when he handed the phone over after this brief announcement. I'd been confused. My mother had been confused. When I asked her if she was okay, trying to discern the reason for the call, we had both come up short. He seemed to have orchestrated this conversation for no reason other than for us to talk. So the call had lasted only six minutes, and it would be the last time I heard my mother's voice. The next morning, on July 4th at 8.58 a.m., Joe called and left a voicemail, demanding that I call him back immediately, that it was about my mother, and though I called him back at 9.41 and 10.01, he hadn't answered. I didn't hear back from him until 10.06. We spoke on the phone until the police arrived, hearing the dogs yapping excitedly in the background. And since we know that he was arrested on the outstanding strangulation charge by the time the police left and spent the following weeks in jail, it's impossible for this coming-home-from-work scenario to have occurred any later. So when could he have been at work? Our window is only between 10.30 a.m. on Friday, July 3rd and 8.50 a.m. Saturday, July 4th. So if he found my mother collapsed in the floor, it would have been on July 3rd, either that afternoon or evening, or maybe even late into the night. If that's the case, that means he spent hours in the house with her, either alive or dead, and that, for whatever reason, he'd chosen not to call anyone, that hours and hours had passed without him calling an ambulance or the police or even me. Why had I gotten a respectable 9 a.m. phone call? instead of a middle-of-the-night emergency call, why might he have chosen not to inform me of her death until the next day? Or is it that when he says the word job, this is code for some other nefarious activity? Was he out buying or selling drugs? Did he come home late, two or three in the morning from such a deal, and that's when he found her collapsed? If so, that's still six hours of not helping her. Six hours that he spent doing... What, exactly? Or was all of this a lie? Is it possible that he was home with her the whole time? That not only did he give her the drug that would end her life, but that he waited, watching, making sure that his plan would work, that it wouldn't fail? Because we know that he lied, but which truth is he trying to conceal? Where he was, or what he'd done? His story keeps changing. Detective Barnes had said. He says he thinks she got into his heroin, but I think he did something to her. Well, I just don't know why he called me crying and carrying on, Shay says. Maybe he's lonely, I wonder. Or maybe he's trying to find out what we think about all of this, or what we know, to gauge if he is yet out of the woods. That night, I finally get a hold of David number three, my mom's third and final husband, and update him on what little I know about the case. This is the first time I've managed to catch him in a few weeks. Every time I've thought to call him, he was working, and whenever he'd called me, 
I hadn't seen it until it was an obscene hour and too late to call back. My mom met David when I was nine months old. They joined my aunt at the lake one day with some friends for some frivolity. He tells me that, at first impression, she was shy, quiet, that she'd had a couple wine coolers but was far from drunk, that she'd been an attentive and loving mother, when I was small anyway. And though David remained friends with my aunt for many years, my mother hadn't gotten involved with him romantically until I was a teen. I was graduating from high school when they were boarding a plane for Vegas to get married, a marriage that would later be annulled. Despite their short-lived union, he's always tried to do what was right by me. He's been supportive of my educational goals and writing ambitions. When my car broke down and I was stranded on the side of the road, or stranded anywhere for that matter, he would show up. He was always only a call away. When I got pickpocketed in Barcelona, lost my cash, credit cards, and passport, forced to bump money from my friends until he could wire me some to Rome, there hadn't even been a question about whether or not he would do it. He showed up for my graduations, my wedding, and though he stopped talking to my mother many years ago, he still calls me to check in, asks how me and Kim are doing. Now he listens to me recount Joe's varied stories, to the implied alibis as thin as graphene. He took a deep drag on his cigarette and said, I think he killed them all. Hank, your nana, and your mama too. I settled down on the porch outside my house. It's chilly, but that's to be expected for a fall night in Michigan. Well, that escalated quickly, I joke. But I can understand his reasoning. My uncle had something to gain with each of their deaths. My grandfather's money in the quarter of the house. Everything, apparently, when Nana died. And probably even my mom, though it remains to be seen. Because I've put in an application for the second time to the Social Security Administration office for my mother's social security number. With it, I can search the public records and see if Joe took out any insurance policies or anything shady like that. This is my last avenue, since her social security number wasn't on the death certificate. Though the SSA seems to be taking its sweet time. Well, you're not the first one to say so, I tell him. Shay believes he killed Renee, too. He was there at her place when she died. He'd been trying to put clothes on her when the police showed up at the apartment. She'd overdosed naked in the bathroom or something. I'm hesitant to bring up Shay. She and David hadn't gotten along. In fact, they'd fought in the front yard outside of Shay's trailer one night. I had watched through the window as they'd swung each other around like kids on a playground, fighting over my mother, no doubt. But he says nothing about this. I hadn't known about Renee, he tells me. Yeah, apparently they'd been getting ready to go to Renee's girlfriend's mom's funeral or something. Guess her heart gave out before she got fully dressed. Anyway, Joe told me himself that he'd been trying to put the clothes on her before the cops showed up, so I guess that's not a lie. Or hell, maybe it is. It's a strange image, my uncle trying to dress a corpse. David exhaled. Is that so? But I mean, I don't think he killed her. It just doesn't fit his pattern. I watch my breath fog in front of my face. A neighbor walks past with their dog. I flash a smile, lift my hand in a wave. He's gotten stuff with every other death money or property, but with Renee, I don't think he got anything, so I don't see why he would. Or maybe he did it for the pleasure, a dark voice whispers in my mind. Maybe the rush is enough, a way to soothe some pained and powerless part of his psyche, knowing that he can reach out and end a life whenever he wants. Maybe you're right, 
David agrees. But I still think he finished off Hank and Nana. Well, if he did kill my grandfather, we can't say he didn't have it coming, I admit to him, after what he did to my mom. Because right now, it's hard to feel sympathy for my mother's rapist. Emphysema or poison are both terrible ways to die. Regardless of whether or not Joe is responsible, it seems like my grandfather got his just desserts. But I wonder what my mom felt about it, watching him slowly exit the world. Whether she felt any relief. I think it would have been hard either way. Not just what he did to your mom, David says. What he did to Renee, too. Oh God, did he rape my aunt, too? I say. A woman with a stroller looks my way. I force another smile and lower my voice. Didn't he have enough going on with my mom in the freaking whorehouse? Did he really need another victim? Christ. No, not rape, he said. Renee was fat back then, real chubby. And probably a good thing because nobody wanted to bother with her. I don't open an argument on the subject of body politics with him or point out the fact that fat people are far from unrapeable. But I know whatever he's telling me is probably true. David and Renee had been friends first, long before my mother had come back from Illinois with a baby on her hip. In fact, it seems my aunt had been friends with everyone in Nashville. An exaggeration, I'm sure, but to hear Shay and David tell it, you'd think that this was true. Hanging out with a slew of people at the bars at night, and the lake during the day. And I'm sure she was popular. She was funny. She was good company. And at the very least, she always had weed. Once we got close, she told me some things, David said. My heart skips a beat. What kind of things? Another long drag on his cigarette. About how she had to watch. My blood ices. She'd wake up and see what was happening and was powerless to stop it. You mean Renee was in the room when it happened? That's what she told me. And what reason did my aunt have to lie about something like that? I do a quick pathetic calculation and realize he must be right. The house had three bedrooms, the one my grandparents had shared, and the remaining two that were split among the children. Four children, two for each room undoubtedly divided by gender. Why in the world had I assumed my mother had been alone? All this time I'd been picturing one terrified little girl, lying awake at night, waiting for the worst to happen. But in fact, there had always been two. episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir, to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. 
And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.